There's a big industry in America with all the characteristics you want as a business buyer. But we've never even mentioned it on Acquiring Minds, let alone had a guest who bought a business in it. This industry has high fragmentation, retirement age owners, tech stagnation, so lots of opportunity to implement modern best practices, and enduring demand. Well, today's guest, Jack McCarthy, is building a big business buying these little businesses. And these little businesses are farms. Turns out farming in America hasn't gone corporate, as I had assumed. There are countless mom-and-pop operations growing crops like pistachios and almonds. And Jack and his team at Gold Leaf Farming are assembling an enormous portfolio of them. Since their first acquisition in 2017, Goldleaf has acquired $350 million worth of mostly pistachio and almond farms across 1,000 miles from Northern California down to Arizona. Now, this isn't some financial play or a roll-up looking to exit. There is a very long-term mission at the core here. It's actually hard to bucket what Jack and team are doing. It borrows from search and holdcos and private equity, in real estate, and zero-to-one entrepreneurship. If I were being semantic, I might call Jack a zero-to-one entrepreneur more than an acquisition entrepreneur. But the parallels of his model and ours are so numerous, Jack's a listener of Acquiring Minds, that it made sense to have him come on. Regardless, the venture is fascinating, the numbers are big, and the vision generational. Please enjoy this conversation with Jack McCarthy, co-founder of Gold Leaf Farming. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher, first with a traditional search fund, the second time around he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com. Link in the show notes. Jack McCarthy, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. Jack, what you are doing is different than my typical guest in that you are focused on farms rather than businesses. Of course, farms really are businesses. So as we'll tease out over the next hour or so, there are tons of parallels between you and a typical searcher. But let's start at the end for context, Jack, and then we'll go back, get your story and work forward. Please tell us what is Goldleaf Farming? So we own and operate uh, almond, pistachio, and medjool date farms today on behalf of our partners, who are all you know individuals and, and families that want exposure to ag but don't have a good way to get it. Great. And give us a sense of 
age of the business and, and size by whatever metric you use? Yeah. So we started uh, six or seven years ago when I was in business school. And today uh, we own about 12,000 acres of, of farms. Uh, you know, Central Park is a little less than a thousand acres. So we're, you know, decent size acreage. It's about $350 million of asset value. And we've got a great team of 80 people that, uh, you know, are, are mostly unlike me driving tractors every day and, and operating the, the farms. Excellent. Um, well, we're going to return to that $350 million um, to understand what it what it means, because I suspect it means something a little different than if we were talking $350 million worth of HVAC businesses. Maybe not. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll return to it. But on the physical size, to give people a visual, that was helpful. So Central Park's 1,000 acres and you own 12,000. So 12 Central Parks, give or take. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and for, a, for a modern business person in farming, is that is that a lot? Because- Central Park is in the middle of Manhattan, so so the the scales are a little different here. <laughs> exactly, yeah, it's a little different. You know, we we're a decently large grower today. We got about six thousand acres of almonds and six thousand of pistachios. Our our medjool day business is tiny, so um, you know we're a decently large grower in those crops. Probably a top twenty five globally. Okay, most of our business is a a mom and pop industry. I think the average almond grower has a hundred or two hundred acres. So. Um, you know, it's a pretty, you know, small uh, mom and pop business. There's about 7,000 almond growers, for example. And uh, while there are some some large ones like us, uh, mainly it's a small family family business. Well, you've just hit on parallel number one between uh, your industry and the industry of many of my guests. All right, totally. Jack, let's, let's go back to business school or even earlier if you want, wherever relevant, yeah. please give us the backstory. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm from uh, the Midwest originally, grew up in Indiana. And, um, you know, after going to Indiana University for undergrad, um, I worked at McKinsey. I did a, a stint in, in politics in Chicago. I worked for the mayor in Chicago. And then I worked at a private equity firm uh, that took me out to California called TPG. And through all that stuff, I think partially like my, my dad ran a construction company growing up. Um, I was from Indiana. I was working at places like TPG. And I think they just sort of assumed this guy must know about, you know, farming, <laughs> manufacturing, heavy industry. So I got always staffed on those types of things and, and really grew to, grew to like those types of more overlooked businesses. So I was in business school um, at Stanford and was really... Um, sort of, hey, I'm either going to, I really like TPG. I'm either going to kind of work my way up that uh, that firm or I'm going to do something very, very different, much more entrepreneurial. And I, you know, had the good fortune to be able to spend business school mostly kind of finding that breakaway opportunity. So I, I spent a fair amount of my first year looking at different tech ideas. I, I was at Stanford after all, and, <laughs> and a lot of my classmates were looking at tech. I was looking at agriculture tech with uh, a, a buddy whose dad was a was an almond farmer. Tell us a little bit about um, where you, how you guys arrived on that potential opportunity and started pulling the thread. My friend and I both wanted to do something more entrepreneurial after business school, and we're spending our kind of free time. Um, you know, We had Wednesdays off. Most of our classmates play golf. We would drive out to Chowchilla, California, and see an almond processor. So his dad was a was a almond grower. 
he was getting ready to go to school and sort of like, dad, how do, how do you sell your crop? It must be, you know, on an exchange or something. Right. And, uh, his dad was like, no, well, I give it to this processor, Steve, Steve calls this guy, Bob, who, uh, sets up a contract. Then he calls somebody in, in Dubai, who's going to buy it. They put it on a boat. So it was very kind of opaque, old school phone based industry. Yeah. And we thought that was intriguing. Um, we thought there were other problems related to that, that, that technology could solve. And so we went down that path, like with the general concept of kind of specialty agriculture is, is traded in an old school way. And, um, unfortunately we couldn't find anything that would really improve it. Like it kind of just works, you know, and I'm sure your audience, um, knows that in their businesses, like no matter how much tech and stuff you add to it, stuff generally works pretty well, how it's, how it's functioning today. So we didn't find anything that we were excited to build a business around, but we met, you know, dozens and dozens of people in California agriculture, which tends to be more specialty crops, like what we grow today and realized there was this massive amount of, of land in the U S there's like $3 trillion of land in the U S um, it's very, uh, limited, um, institutional type of money that's in the space. It's, it's really very mom and pop. And there's a big problem in that the, the folks that own the land, the, the farmers that own the land, if they were successful, a lot of times their kids went to college and they're a doctor in LA now, and they don't have a good succession plan. There's also a lot of young talent that studied plant sciences. They know how to operate the farms but they don't have $10 million to buy a, buy a, uh, you know, sort of scale farm. And so that was the, the genesis of, of what we do today is realizing there was this big, uh, asset class that was very attractive, but a big mismatch between the owners today and who needed to operate it tomorrow. Awesome. That was phenomenal. All right, Jack, but a lot of follow-up questions before we proceed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Personally, you said you grew while yeah. you were at TPG. You grew to like the overlooked businesses. W what did you? What did you grow to like? Why did you grow to like them? Yeah, like at McKinsey and TPG, I worked on a variety of things from, uh, you know, more like manufacturing businesses, uh, construction, mining. Um, I worked. Uh, I looked at businesses that did, you know, distri tire distribution and. Uh, all that. One of my businesses at TPG was Chobani Yogurt. Mm -hmm. And I thought like, finally, I have a consumer facing company. They have an office in Manhattan. It's going to be fun. I get to go to a big city. And they're like, no, no, you're going to the plant in upstate New York and Twin Falls, Idaho. And so <laughs> I was helping them with procurement and operational issues. And, uh, you know, just really liked that sort of like hands-on aspect of the business and like how the real world operates is, is so sometimes distant, I think from, um, you know, the end consumer and, and what we see as, as sort of consumers. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just grew to like that business a lot and, and saw from my dad's experience, um, in construction that, um, the same sort of principles in, that apply in, you know, the tech world where you really want a bunch of smart people in one, uh, room, you know, in one company, uh, rowing in the same direction, like that stuff works in heavy industries too, but it's not as common. And so, um, you know, something I've been, uh, really proud of and, and, uh, appreciative of is we've tried to 
you know, really bring a lot of smart people into agriculture, all focused on things like organic conversions and saving water. Um, and that's just really paying dividends is sort of concentrating a, a very high talent team in a space that doesn't have uh, as many companies that have done that. And your friend that you were exploring possible yeah. venture ideas Larson. with, his yeah. name was what? Larson. Larson. Larson and Larson's dad was the almond grower. Was he, was yep. Larson's dad you, what you described as kind of the typical 100 to 200 acre farmer? Yeah, maybe a little bit bigger than that. But, you know, Larson was a Olympian and a Navy SEAL and went to Stanford Business School. So, you know, his dad was a successful farmer, but he, he wasn't necessarily back in, back in uh, Wasco Shafter taking care of his dad's operation. Um, so, you know, I think that was a, a great example. And, um, you know, uh, kind of showcases what, what we see every day in the acquisition side of the business. Yeah. And, and we're going to, we're going to really get to that. And yeah, you're, you're in Larson's exploration, looking for kind of tech ideas, applying tech to the supply chain. At least that was kind of your, the first thread you started pulling on. Why? I assume the first idea you had was some sort of clearinghouse or marketplace for the supply chain. Why doesn't, why, why doesn't that exist? And why did you also conclude that it wasn't a good opportunity? Yeah, I think we did a lot of the classes that I think are, you know, common in, in entrepreneurial places like uh, lean startup type methodology, where we're interviewing people trying to find where the pain is, like who really feels the pain. Mm -hmm. And I would say there's certainly problems to the way that uh, the business works today, but it, it's not especially painful for any one participant, the, the grower, the processor, the trader, or the end consumer, like nobody feels the pain. Mm -hmm. um, and so no one needs to do things differently, like badly. And therefore it's very hard to get people to do things differently because it kind of just works. Yeah. It works at least okay. And so I think one of the lessons from that, that, you know, I'm not in, in technology at all today, really, but I think seeing that you got to be pretty different, you know, 10 times better or 10 times cheaper uh, to, to get somebody to do things really differently. And um, I think that was a really great lesson. Yeah. And by the way, isn't that 10 times better uh, right out of zero to one from Peter Thiel? I think that that's where yeah, I first exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you keep referring to specialty crops. What do you mean by specialty yeah. crop? So in, in ag, we, we talk about, you know, row crops, which would be like corn and, and soybeans. Um, we, especially crops would be stuff that, you know, is smaller markets, um, you know, maybe grown in only a few places. So, uh, we grow almonds. They're grown 80% in California globally, 7% in Australia, 5% in Spain. So they need very specific weather to grow. And that doesn't exist very many places. Other types of specialty crops would be, you know, fruit, uh, like, like in California, we grow, uh, berries on the coast and, and lettuce on the coast. We grow, uh, things like citrus in the central Valley, like near where we farm. And those tend to be crops that can't grow everywhere. And, uh, the, the markets are a little smaller, a little more niche and, and that's, um, you know, create some good opportunities for, for growers. And, and so when you say specialty, really what we're, what we mean is basically just a smaller market uh, a, a, exactly. the end product is just a smaller market 
Listeners of Acquiring Minds know that for almost any business you acquire, its success comes down to the people and how you develop and manage them as their new leader. Thing is, in addition to management, there is also a lot of process and bureaucratic work when it comes to your new employees. Payroll, compliance, HR technology, hiring, to name but a few. These processes are crucial to get right, but at the same time distract from where you want to be putting your energy, in leadership. So, Aspen HR is an HR firm and PEO that takes this work off your plate and handles it with the care it demands. Aspen is owned and run by Mark Sinatra, himself a successful former searcher. So Aspen's own leadership understands the HR challenges that searchers have post-acquisition. The firm is offering Acquiring Minds listeners a complimentary pre-acquisition HR and PEO review for your target business. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at Mark at AspenHR.com. And what, and you also referred now to, um, I think, corn and soy. Um, what are the giants, I guess you call it, I know you call it a row agriculture. What are the giants of agriculture in the U.S.? You know, I think the big businesses tend not to be farmers themselves. They tend to be more, uh, you know, seed businesses, uh, chemical and fertilizer businesses that are selling to farmers. Hmm. Um, you know, some of the processing uh, and, and more like midstream businesses tend to be very large. Um, you know, the, the farmers themselves still are fairly mom and pop. And I think, you know, there's been more consolidation as, the, you know, the technology gets better. Uh, you do want to be investing in um, kind of the latest and greatest ways of farming more sustainably. And some of that takes more capital, more uh, concentration. And um, we're seeing the same types of consolidation happening in our market. It's happening in, in other parts of ag too. A couple things here are kind of counterintuitive to me as a layperson. First, we all, mm -hmm. or I have the sense that there uh, kind of, there's this big ag, big agriculture and that agriculture yeah. now is like run by the Monsantos of the world. Honestly, all I know is Monsanto is a boogeyman. I don't even know what Monsanto does to be honest. So, <laughs> so maybe you can educate me, but so they're like those like seed and, and chemicals businesses is, is that's what you'd hear about as a consumer is people that are selling the farmer, the seed or selling them the, the roundup, uh, that that's, uh, what you'd hear about more as the consumer. And so those guys are actually not the farmers. giants. Yeah, yeah. Those and, are the not, big companies. and not farmers. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the farmers <clears throat> themselves remain um, pretty fragmented, even in non-specialty crops, even in, say, corn. Yeah, although I think there's more consolidation in some of those bigger crops, especially in land ownership. Um, you know, there's more of a liquid market to, to buy a piece of ground and then lease it to a, a farmer in our business. Uh, you know, almond trees take six years to get mature. Pistachio trees take nine years to get mature. So you have a piece of ground, you're going to plant an orchard on it. It's going to take half a decade or a decade to, to mature. And so a lot of the values in the trees and the irrigation, uh, that you've installed to run the orchard. So it's almost more, uh, it's more challenging um, for that market to have outside capital because you have to have that amount of patience, mm. and a lot of the value is is not just in the dirt; it's in the the trees and and other aspects of a, a built up orchard. Mm -hmm. 
but why is it that if if farmers, even non-specialty crop farmers, still are pretty fragmented? You said not as much as on the specialty side, but still pretty fragmented. You know, it used to be that like. 50% of people were farmers or something. There's some statistic mm -hmm. and now it's like less than 2% yeah. or less. So so yeah. square that circle for me. Very few people today are farmers. I, I think, you know, you're in the world. So yeah. you probably meet a tons of ton of farmers. So this is all kind of perspective. But we all have a sense that there are very few farmers. But it sounds like, in fact, there are thousands and thousands of mom and pop farmers to this day. Yep. And, you know, I think uh, there's certainly a lot less than a long time ago, but it's still very fragmented and, and, uh, you know, there's, doesn't need that much employment because the, the process of this is, is quite mechanized. Like in the Midwest, you've got big machines that can cover lots and lots of ground out here. Um, you know, our crops, uh, we have maybe one person, one employee per 200 acres. So, you know, to my central park point, maybe four or five guys covering central park. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, they're pretty mechanized industries, um, doesn't necessarily employ tons and tons of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that said, like the ownership is still very fragmented and, and, uh, you know, you got a lot of small, small business owners basically running, um, acreage in their little part of the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay. And so now let's return to where we were. So the, so the opportunity that you guys ended up kind of spotting wasn't in some SaaS tool or marketplace uh, to, to throw it to throw it at the supply chain, but was in the yeah. fact that if there's maybe um, a talent, there's an opportunity for very hungry, a talent, talented new sets of eyes to come into this industry and maybe be more aggressive, better operators, perhaps. Yep. And and a very fragmented market. Yep. And so there, that was kind of the yeah, so, thesis. Yeah. So, so basically we realized, um, you know, the average farmer is 60 or 70, uh, you know, everywhere in the U S but in California, uh, they don't necessarily have a great succession plan. Right. Um, and, uh, on the other hand, um, you know, I ended up, uh, bringing in, um, my co-founder, Brandon, who's an agronomist and, you know, guys like him studied plant sciences. They grew up in the industry, um, maybe even worked, uh, in a family operation, but, uh, to do this at scale, you might need 10 or $20 million to get, to get into the business. And so a lot of our team today and, and Brandon, um, you know, before we started this, were really talented agronomists and farmers, but they don't have the capital to get yeah. into the business the way it's structured today. And so there aren't there aren't kind of incubators or startup competitions at the schools where agronomy agronomy is taught to target the Brandons of the world to raise a few million bucks of capital and go farm, go buy a farm. No, it's very difficult. Like the main capital is kind of bank debt, like mortgage debt, mm -hmm. and that can only get you, you know, 50 or 60% of what you need to buy a property. So, um, you know, it's very difficult to enter into farming if, even if you have the talent. And, uh, I think that's something that we're, you know, addressing pretty head on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Addressing this head on, what shape did that take? Yeah. So the way we, the way we operate is, um, we have a, a group of partners that want exposure to farmland. Um, our original 
partners uh, were tech entrepreneurs that um, had actually, you know, bought several farms themselves directly because they couldn't find a way to get exposure to agriculture. Um, they wanted exposure to agriculture and farming. They couldn't find a way to do it. So they bought farms directly and realized, man, this is actually a lot of work. In every other asset class, we, we have someone who manages um, that asset for us. And, you know, th that would work well here. So um, they helped us get started. Um, I can get into this more, but it was basically like a search fund concept where they gave us some money to go see if we could make a business of it for the first two years. We ended up doing uh, five investments over that time. And, uh, you know, that became the starting point to then continuing to grow. But, you know, our investors look like those guys. They might be um, individuals, uh, tech entrepreneurs, business owners, um, you know, work in finance. In most cases, they don't work in agriculture. They don't have exposure to that. And um, they they want it. And so that's what we provide is, is a way to get access to that. And, um, you know, then on the other hand, we're hiring really talented young people um, or talented farm managers that, you know, uh, know how to how to take care of the trees, drive really high yields, but they don't uh, have the capital to do it. And um, trying to create an environment where they really feel like they're running their own farm, running their own business, and we're making that easier for them to do by giving them, you know, centralized procurement, um, you know, hopefully uh, access to other talented people, um, kind of giving them uh, the keys to run their own farm. And, and uh, we want it to feel more and more like they're running their own, they're running their own operation and we're just helping them uh, make that easier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Reminds me, Jack, something you said to me on the pre-call that it's hard, yeah. it's hard to categorize what gold leaf is a little bit hold co a little <laughs> bit search a little bit real estate a little yeah. bit farming um el el elaborate on that yeah so i think we we borrow from lots of different um other concepts because it is a little bit of a new model you know in some ways it's a new model where we're borrowing from search to get started like hey uh we had capital to go look for a couple of years and find the first set of farms to build a business around. Um, in some sense, we're, we're doing what searchers do, which is uh, bring high talent people into a maybe overlooked uh, industry or business. Um, we also own farms. So there is a real estate component to what we do, but we need to operate them too. We can't just sort of lease them out. Um, so I think we're borrowing from those businesses, but sometimes I, I start down that path um, and then I sort of realized like, well, the, the big successful family farmers that we look up to, like, uh, we look up to Driscoll's, the, the berry company, uh, they, you know, only do, uh, blueberries, blackberries, strawberries, raspberries, they do four berries, but they do them really well. They own the genetics, the farms, the processing, and then the marketing, like you'd see them in the grocery store. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we think about building towards that over the next you know, many decades. Um, and really like we don't look way different from them. We just have maybe outside capital, but otherwise we, we do look pretty similar to those guys. Um, and so I think we are borrowing from lots of different, uh, industries. Um, but at the same time, we're really emulating these, these great, um, ag businesses that were built over certainly decades, um, but kind of family ag businesses that have, have, 
uh, built a dominant business over time. Well, uh, without knowing anything about Driscoll's, um, perhaps, yeah. I mean, were they as acquisitive as you? I mean, you, your, your playbook here is starting by acquisition and then growing through acquisition. And maybe in farming, it has to be that way because there's no such thing as unowned land. So you got to start by buying somebody's yeah. land. Yeah, I think that's right. Like, uh, we're in an interesting moment in our business where um, almond price has been low for about three and a half years. Uh, interest rates are up. And so, uh, you know, we think there's going to be quite a bit of sales activity the next couple of years where people are selling or having to sell. And we're going to see some really quality assets for sale. When we look at some of these, these family businesses, um, there's a, a great grower we know in the Sacramento area. Um, they bought all of their farms in two, two downturns. So in the 1980s and in the early 2000s, we had similar moments to where we are in almonds today. And that's when they bought, you know, really all their acres. They didn't buy anything else uh, in, in other periods. So it is a growth by acquisition business to, to buy and, and uh, buy more land to, to grow. But um, I think the, the smart folks are doing it in, um, you know, the right moments yeah. and, and um, you know, building a quality footprint sort of patiently, but aggressively when there's, when, uh, you know, the iron's hot. Yeah. But in fact, to date, you have been buying when the economics weren't as good as you think they're going to get now. Yeah. I mean, we've, um, had to start, I guess. Done, <laughs> yeah. We, we started, but I think like most of our, um, acquisitions have been in, um, the last few years when, you know, prices have been low. Mm. So I think we're seeing better and better deals. Like the first couple of years, we invested two million the first year of equity. Uh, we invested uh, eight million the second year. I think we invested around twenty the third year. And you know today we have about two hundred fifty million of equity, and we're in year six. So we we really started slow, figured out uh, our sweet spot of you know what were the types of farms that we wanted to own really forever. And, um, once we knew that we started, started acting and I think now we're ready to, you know, continue to grow because we have this great operating footprint. We know what we're looking for and the, the market timing is, is feeling more and more right. And yet you're already at 350 million. So what exactly does that, I mean, talk to me like I'm eight. What does that exactly does that mean? That $350 million number? Yeah. So basically uh, approximate value of the farms that we own today. And, um, you know, we use a little bit of debt and, and some equity and equity to, to capitalize them. So we have about $350 million of farms, about, uh, 250 million of, of that is equity value and the, and the rest is, is debt. So, um, you know, fortunate to have a, a lot of partners that have, have made that possible. Like, uh, you know, people interested in getting this kind of farmland exposure. And, um, you know, that's the, uh, what's enabled us to, to buy, um, that size of portfolio. So, and let's, let's, um, tease this out a little bit. So 250 yeah. million of it is equity. So that means I, you know, that in the rest debt, so 250 to hundred debt, usually I'm used to hearing terms that are kind of the reverse or more where they're heavily levered. So you're, mm -hmm you're just the opposite. I mean, you, you've bought these things mostly in cash, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, or, you know, we're either 
buying land and then developing it and drawing debt over time, uh, you know, when we plant an orchard, or we're buying usually with, you know, 40%, 30% uh, LTV debt. And, um, you know, I think over time, we probably are moving in the direction of less debt, A, because interest rates have gone up, so the debt is more expensive, and then B, um, what we're finding is when you have a longer hold period, the debt uh, doesn't help the returns as much. And so it, um, you know, if you're doing private equity and you're going to buy something and sell it four years later, the debt can help your IRR quite a bit. But in our case, we're buying farms, hopefully a hold for, for a long, long time. And uh, the debt doesn't help as much and we're in a commodity business. So it does add to the risk to have, to have more debt. So I'd say generally over time, like, I'm a reformed private equity guy from using more debt <laughs> to using less and less as the further we get into building this business. But 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 again, Jack, I mean, I understand that the dynamics are very different when you kind of have a permanent hold mentality, but at the same time, yeah. doesn't leverage always juice your IRRs no matter what your hold period is? So- it does, but I think if you if you um, you know, look at what going from 25 to 50% LTV does to your IRR in a uh, a four year hold versus a you know twenty five year hold? Mm. It matters uh, less on the on the IRR, and um, you know it adds the same amount of risk. So I think the further we get into this, particularly with our long hold deals, the less uh, leverage we're trying to use. And I think as we grow, we think we'll use some debt, but um, less and less over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess, yeah, the longer, the longer the hold is, the less the debt helps the IRR. Sorry, you just said exactly yep. that, but I'm just making sure it crystallized. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. That's okay. exactly right. And I think that's why you see like, you know, in these sort of older school businesses, like uh, in the SMB world, like people not using as much debt because they built the business over 30 years or look at how like Berkshire Hathaway is capitalized, like they have the float, but they also have, you know, a little bit of debt, but really like trying to use less and less debt over time. And sure, they could have used more and gotten more return for it. But, uh, you know, they were trying to build something over the long run, not get every last, uh, you know, basis point of IRR. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we are going to uh, dive into this long-term hold philosophy in just a minute. Sure. But before we do, so Jack, this... $350 million in assets, $250 million of which you've said is equity yeah. that you've raised from your LPs. So is that some mega fund that gave you a quarter billion dollars or or is it a bunch of billion dollar checks? What, what does the makeup of that look like? What can you share? All, all our investors are high net worth and family office. And, um, you know, I think, you know, it's generally regular people that want exposure to ag and, and have, you know, enough capital to do alternatives. But, um, you know, people writing hundred K checks, uh, into getting a little bit of ag exposure up to, you know, we have family offices or multifamily offices have done one to $10 million with us. But I think, uh, the, the bulk of our investors are sub million dollars and, um, really just looking for a little bit of diversifier in their, in their portfolio. So, um, you know, that's our capital today, uh, that kind of long-term tax paying smart money we've really enjoyed partnering with. And I think that's kind of how we plan to keep growing the business. Although I'm sure as we get bigger, we'll have opportunities to take in, um, you know, 
other other types of capital too. So your average LP is a million dollars or less. So so we're talking 200, 250 individual checks that you've that you've raised? Yeah, our I I don't know the exact average, but I'd say, you know, we have most of our LPs are less than a million dollars and you know in the couple hundred grand and uh we have, you know, friends and family that are in it. It sort of expanded from there. And you know, today we have people that have done, you know, over millions of dollars with us that are uh more like a family office or a, a ultra high net worth investor, but um, you know, a lot of our partners are uh, business owners, entrepreneurs, uh, folks that have the capital to do some alternatives, but they're not, uh, you know, uh, uh, multi-billionaire that's, that's doing this. It's just regular mm -hmm. uh, individuals. So if people listening have a few hundred grand laying around and they want some exposure to ag, they should uh, reach out? Yeah, give us a call. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, we, we have all accredited investors as various securities rules and stuff, but, um, yeah. yeah, we, uh, you know, have basically a, a set of friends and family that expanded from there. And that means that, um, you know, we personally know most of our investors and, uh, met them through someone that we know well, and, and that's been a, a great group of partners to have, um, over the last six years. And I think we'll continue to, to target that kind of, that kind of group. But just so I understand, if you've raised $250 million, is it common that you'd have so many investors, dozens and dozens and dozens? Is that often how something like this can kind of I think it's accrue more over time? In, or are you guys unusual this way? I think it's more common in, in real estate. But yeah, I mean, like if a private equity firm had $250 million fund, it would not be made up of this this kind of investor. So I think it's something cool about our model is that it started kind of friends and family and expanded from there into, you know, their friends who did this kind of stuff. And, um, I, I feel we've been really, really lucky with it. It is more common in real estate cause there's like tax and stuff to what we do and what exists in real estate that makes it more suitable for a tax paying investor, like an individual or a family. But I, uh, I still think, you know, it was sort of organic that we just started that way. And then it, it grew over time. Now, you've said multiple times that your investors want exposure to this. They want access to the access to the asset class. Uh, you've said it a number of different ways. Um, yeah. Why, why has it been so hard for them to access before? I guess because it's so fragmented. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a variety of reasons. So um, you mentioned earlier, uh, in the 1800s, like 50% of people were farmers. Yeah. Today, it's very small. And so the overlap between where there's capital and where there's uh, talent in, in agriculture is is pretty limited. Um, you know, in Silicon Valley, uh, the capital's on Sand Hill Road, the talent's at Stanford University down the block, like it overlaps quite a bit. Mm. And so I think in this business, um, that's one challenge. I also think when people have tried to come into to agriculture to build businesses um, with capital, often they're, you know, in New York or San Francisco, uh, they don't have the operating experience to know what they're doing. And uh, one of the things we've tried really hard to build is that combination of my co-founders, an agronomist, I'm a private equity guy, uh, really down the org chart, we have that mix of younger uh, Stanford alums, but uh, experienced farm manager in Fresno. 
And um, that's what we're trying to combine. So capital and the talent lining up. There's also um, institutional investors have, have tried to come in our space. Um, the average farm that we buy might be five, 10, $15 million. So if you're a Canadian pension trying to put out $500 million, that's not easy to do. It takes a, a long time. And especially if you're going to have a very high bar for what you're buying. So I think the talent capital overlap, um, the lack of familiarity people have with, with agriculture as a, as a business, and, and then just the sort of size of acquisition that's available, make it, make it challenging for people to, whether it's individuals or institutions to get exposure. Mm -hmm. And then, and why do they want exposure? What, what is that? What is kind of the understanding of this asset class by these folks that make it appealing and, and make them, I, I assume they think of it as a very long-term thing. So it's kind of a place to not get IRR, but to park money for a very long time. So, so elaborate on that for us. Yeah. So, um, us farmland since, you know, world war two has done about the same returns as the S and P 500, but maybe half the volatility. So it's done a low double digit return, some driven by cash flow, some driven by appreciation. And the, uh, only down period in farmland and aggregate was in the 1980s. So there's been one down period. The S and P's had probably 15 or 20 in that time period. And so I think people think of it as a safe asset class that can get decent returns. When you look at the types of specialty crops that we do, the returns have been a little higher, some more like 15 to 20%, depending on when you entered and exited. And compounding over 10, 15, 20 years, that is very attractive. I think Berkshire Hathaway's compounded at 20% right. since the 60s. So, um, you know, pretty interesting long-term compounding. Um, in this in this asset class really achieved by mom and pop farmers who are great farmers but not necessarily um you know that like sophisticated in terms of using technology or having access to to lots of money mm -hmm. they've just been in an attractive industry and done a good job with their with their farm so i think it's a fundamentally attractive asset class um that's that's performed well over a long time but it's just unfortunately hard to access. And, and that's what we uh, try to do. Yeah. Well, Jack, where do I sign up? You're, you're really, you're, this is a compelling, <laughs> this is really a compelling opportunity you're, you're presenting there here. There you go. And I, and I actually, I, I, I meant that half jokingly, cause we are going to also talk about if, if, if there's opportunity here for, for the audience, but let's, let's put a pin yeah. in that. Um, so let's, let's get back to the plot a little bit. So you said sure. in year one, you deployed 2 million, year two, 8 million, year three, 20, and now 350. Take us, um, take us back to the very beginning where you said you kind you had kind of a quasi search fund model. Just, yeah. just give us a, a couple minutes on how this thing really got rolling and these first investors. And was it, you said it was kind of a search fund, kind of not. So if you would. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh you know, I had spent the first year of business school doing this various tech ideas. Uh, the first investors who I mentioned, we had met through that process of like trying different tech ideas, meeting potential, you know, users. And he called me at the end of the summer between my first and second year and said, Hey, how's your, how's your ag tech thing going? I was like, terrible. We're going to shut it down. <laughs> and he was like, you know, I really feel, as you know, we own some farms. I feel that, uh, you know, there's, there's a business to be made around giving people that exposure, but you guys, you know, 
running the operation and, and kind of like doing what we do now. So that was the original concept. Um, the original guys um, helped us get started and basically said, you know, they'll give us money to, you know, pay salaries, pay for legal, things like that for the first couple of years. And uh, beyond that, we'd have to, you know, sink or swim. And um, that's kind of what ended up happening. So we um, got sort of seed capital from from these two investors. Um, they they also became uh, investors in the farms themselves, and um, you know ended up over the course of my second year of business school setting that up, um, starting to look at farms to acquire. And I I really met my co-founder Brandon during that period too. He was an agronomist who'd helped one of the institutional investors in our space build a big portfolio and sell it to a Canadian pension and was looking for more of a like true farming company situation. Um, he was thinking about doing farm management for outside investors. I was thinking about becoming an outside investor. And we said, why don't we do this all under one, one roof? Um, and so Brandon and I got that, that seed capital from our first investors, Brian and Scott, and then uh, got started. And the first year maybe maybe give us a, like a picture of what these these two these sure. these first two million dollars of capital deployed look like like what just just some story time like what were what were these family yeah. farms like where were they you know yeah so it was just one farm mm -hmm. you know we looked at many 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 farms um we're pretty picky on for sure knew right out the gate that um having good access to water was important so in our business, the the water rights are attached to the farm, so uh, the old savvy growers like have positioned themselves in in good areas with good water rights, and um, that was something that was important. We also knew we wanted uh, a quality orchard, quality growing conditions, so we looked a lot. Uh, ultimately, found a first deal that was two million dollars of equity. Um, the second deal is maybe more interesting to talk about because we. Um, kind of new, uh, you know, it wasn't a 10 out of 10 buy window like it's kind of emerging to be today. Like now that price has been low for a little while and interest rates are up, we're starting to see some more, more frequently see very attractive situations. So far, we've looked at 11 or 1200 farms and bought 20 something. So our hit rates two or 3%. We're seeing that, um, attractiveness level go up. But back when we started, we knew we were in that kind of moment. So we were looking for more off the beaten path opportunity too. Um, we uh, found an opportunity in Arizona, which is not a, traditionally a growing region for these high value crops. Um, it had good, the right weather, some advantages over California, like it had much colder winters, and then it had good access to, to water. And we thought, hey, let's see if we can't uh, turn that into a, a pistachio region. So that was our second deal, which was mostly just buying land and then kind of over the next five years, proving it out by planting some trees, a small portion of it, proving out the water by drilling wells. And then as we got into it, doubling down, doubling down again to sort of uh, once we knew it was working, then really add more capital. So. I think like philosophically, that's how we try to operate is start small, do more once we know it's working. Um, and that's, you know, embodied in the first couple of deals we did, particularly our, our second deal, which was in, in Kingman, Arizona. But, but 
the, the second one, you're basically starting from scratch. I mean, you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're, as you said, buying land and planting a crop there for the first time or an orchard there for the first time and you have to wait five years. Yeah. So yeah. how did you, why did, why did you not, why did the proof come earlier than five years that you deployed capital much faster thereafter? Well, the, the, the proof is, is different things. It can be, um, it can be just showing that there's water. So we knew from the geology that there was water, um, from the, from the diligence, but being able to access it for the first time adds a lot of value. Um, seeing how the trees mature and, and age as they, uh, get older and seeing that it's on pace with California or better is helpful. So we're sort of seeing different things, um, as we prove out this region and, um, you don't necessarily need to wait till year nine to have, you know, full proof. We're sort of measuring the, you know, trunk circumference mm -hmm. and, and looking at how the, um, you know, when they're coming out of dormancy and things like that to understand how they're, per, um, how they're, how they're growing and maturing. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of it's water, a lot of it's, uh, growing conditions and, and kind of showing that slowly and steadily over time. And then in the meantime, you know, to your question on like what it kind of looked and felt like, I worked out of my closet. My co-founder worked out of his truck. Um, eventually we had our first kid. So I got kicked out of the closet and worked in my friend's, uh, you know, startup. Um, and, you know, we basically spend a few days a week um, getting stuff done a couple of days a week um, out looking at farms and meeting, meeting farmers to, to um, look at opportunities. So it was kind of a mix between, um, you know, working out of your closet or a sort of startup feel mm -hmm. and then uh working out of the the back uh, the bed of my uh friends uh, my co-founder's truck you know when we'd meet up at a farm that we were looking at man that sounds like a lot of fun the the, the <laughs> seriously the meeting in the field not being in the closet <laughs> yeah yeah there's a there's a dollar general by our first property that we still talk about is like that was like our office you know mm. for the first couple of years because we always meet up at that that dollar general mm -hmm. and i you know i don't really uh I don't really, um, feel any, uh, negativity around this, but like I drive a Subaru, you know, I, I live in the Bay area. Um, I'm very like overt about like, I'm not a farmer, mm -hmm. um, but my co-founder is. And so in the early days we would kind of jokingly, not jokingly, like park my Subaru at the dollar general, hop in his F-150 and, and drive over to, <laughs> totally. drive over to meet people. So we, uh, looked the part more than, than I would by myself. Totally. Jack, they should have just left you in the closet, hide you in the back room. I know, right? Hurting all the credibility. Exactly. The, exactly. But so, so how many of your farms are start from scratch farms versus operating farms? It's about uh, half and half or a third that we developed and two thirds that we, we, we bought. Um, even the ones that we bought where they were already planted, uh, the trees might have been, you know, only three or four years old, or we were going to take them uh, from conventional and convert them to organic. So still today... Uh, we have, you know, quite a bit of, of capital and development farms. And then, um, of our mature portfolio, uh, 43% is, is mature and at it's like steady state production, 57% of the acreage is either not yet mature or not yet, uh, certified organic. Well, that leaves me feeling like this is more of a land play than anything because it, on, uh, from across your whole portfolio, 
I don't know, I, I missed the math there, but maybe 25% from the entire portfolio is actually operating mature farms that you're just continuing on in the way that they were. And and the rest yeah. is is kind of you're, you're redeveloping or starting from scratch orchards. Yeah, and to your point on like where we are in the cycle, you know, it's going to change depending. Like I think our, our belief is we want to be really expert at uh, – operating these these crops you know really good almond farmer really good pistachio farmer and then be flexible on what makes the most sense like most of our pistachios um, are in a new region where we've developed because the valuations are really high in california and so you know if we can sell our arizona stuff someday for california valuation great but we're certainly building it to a, at a much cheaper cost i see um where we are in almonds today i think Buying mature farms is is becoming more attractive uh, than than building you know planting a, an orchard from scratch just because of uh, you know the price being so low. So I think um, we're flexible on where we are. Most of our firm's existence um, has been in a you know coming out of a boom period into a lower period, and so we've done a lot more uh, kind of value add and development, if you will, in, in real estate lingo mm -hmm. and and less like buying existing orchards mm -hmm. and and when you're doing value add are you is it still the case that you're like buying from a family and it's kind of a small mom and pop i mean what what is on this land before that you then redevelop a, a farm just just sort of an inferior one yeah that's still uh still mostly the story so yeah it could be they were growing you know cotton or alfalfa like a lower value crop and they didn't have the know-how or the, the capital to, to plant an orchard. Mm -hmm. It does take a fair amount of capital to get an orchard up and running. Um, you know, in some cases, uh, we've had orchards that were, uh, yeah, I think cotton, alfalfa, rice, cattle, uh, sort of like lower value crops that um, long-term, more and more of the places with good water and good growing conditions in California go to that highest and best use, which is like higher value permanent crops in California. And uh, there's still a fair amount out there that's that's not yet made that transition. Mm -hmm. And so how are these farms valued? That was something I spoke with your with your colleague Sawyer about and, and what a mess it, it is or how just kind of unpredictable it is. So talk, talk us through that. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things about, and I'm sure um, folks more in the the search world or or the the SMB world like um, you know are are familiar with this but um, things are not necessarily priced on a multiple or cap rate type of basis like a cash flow type uh, valuation um, I'd say many farmers have in their head that an almond farm is worth 30 or thirty five thousand dollars an acre and um, what we know is some farms produce $2,000 of cash flow or $1,000 of cash flow. Some might produce $4,000 or $5,000. And so we're really sort of sifting through for great water and then uh, valuing the orchards more on what they're going to produce from a cash flow and returns perspective than, um, you know, caring about the, the comps. Um, so, yeah, that's something unique about our market that it is uh, you know, less institutional. And so the, the valuation framework is just pretty old school. Um, you know, whereas at, at TPG, like every business was, you know, 50 different private equity firms were looking at it and they were all bidding to the, you know, decimal point of EBITDA multiple 
and that's just not at all how our business is. There's no competition. And, uh, you know, usually the competition is the guy keeping it for another year. He decides not to sell it. And, uh, you know, the, the valuation is done sort of based on what did my neighbor get or what did I hear almond farms are worth? Well, it also seems like another contrast between your valuation and, and how searchers will value an HVAC business is you're basically proformaing what you guys will do with this land. Yep. And it, it's almost completely decoupled from what it has historically produced or, or, or the economics of the historical production. Whereas in search, you're encouraged strongly to, to, to look only at, you know, that HVAC business, whatever it produced for the last three or five years, don't think that you're going to come in there and transform it and, yeah. and, and grow it. Assume that you're just going to steady state it. If you grow it, we yep. all want to grow it. That's the goal. Great. But don't pro forma that. I mean, I mean, do have a, you know, have a, have a good case or whatever, have your cases, but like, um, you're, you're really, you're really leaning on it on the recent historical financial, historic financials. Um, it sounds like yep. you guys are not. It, it depends. Like I'd say in California where there's good production history, um, we're typically looking at, you know, what does this area produce in terms of almond yield? Like we know, uh, where the high yielding areas are that have the right weather and soils and the right water. And so we know what a high quality farm in a given area is going to produce, or even often we know the actual production history of a farm. So we try to mainly focus on that sort of hard facts and not be focused on, can we do better than that? Can we save money on this or that? Um, really the only case where we think we're, um, you know, building in some upside is if we know we're going to take it organic, uh, that is something that we, you know, bake in, if you will, that we know we're going to do. But, um, you know, typically we're saying, okay, this guy's been averaging 3000 pounds an acre of almond yield. This is what it would cost to farm in this area. Cause we farm up the street and that, that means we can pay X mm -hmm. and, um, we might not have financials from, from the, the buyer. We'd have like USDA production history, but, these are small businesses, so they usually would have like a tax return, but not necessarily a, a detailed financial package. And, and we're really focused on what a week spend to farm, what's his production history been, or what's the USDA average production history in this area, so that we can be pretty certain of how we're going to do. So tell us, tell us more about this USDA um, production history centralized database thing. So this is kind of a, a, a benchmark that exists that you can reference. We, we gather yield data from all different places. Like there's county averages that the USDA publishes. Um, we look at, you know, um, other types of data that's out there. We get, um, you know, advice from, uh, agronomists and farmers and say, you know, where have they seen high yields? And we have a, basically a tool we've built, like a GIS tool that has water districts, you know, what kind of uh, opportunity zone tax system it's in, uh, what uh, have the yields been historically, what do we think the cost of production is in this area based on the water and the yield. And we sort of aggregate all that into like, basically we know the areas where we'd want to buy and where we wouldn't. And um, we've gotten to the point now where I think when we see a new opportunity for sale and five minutes, we know if it's probably going to be a fit for us or not. Um, and um, I think that the level of focus we have on the same types of assets has allowed us to really know what our strike zone is and, and what it isn't mm -hmm. over the last five or six years. Well, this tool sounds 
mighty powerful. Is this um, is this kind of emerging as some secret sauce for you guys? I mean, is do, are, do yeah. other players in the space, to the extent you even have competition, have data tools like this? I'm sure some of the, you know, there's a few more institutional investors in farmland. I'm sure some of them have it, but typically, um, you know, they're doing lots and lots of different crops. We only do two crops, which are grown in the Central Valley in California. So we know the water really well. We know the growing conditions really well. And I think that's allowed us to be pretty focused on on what we want. Um, and, you know, I think it is probably a uh, secret sauce that's a mix of this this tool and just what's in our head from having done this for for quite a while now. And, and sorry, how long has it been? What year are we in? Uh, 2017, we started. So it's been six years, six and a half years. You just mentioned upside. Uh, what yeah. about downside? So of course, uh, on, on the search, let's, and again, uh, bringing this home for the searchers listening, um, one of the names of the game for searchers is, is really focusing on downside uh, more, if not as much, if not more than the upside. And because diligencing is so hard, there's so many unknowns, the businesses are so small and messy and fragile, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so really thinking it through is is the name of the game. How do you guys think about downside protection when you're buying land and farms? Yeah. I mean, I think the further we've gotten into this, the more we're really looking for very high quality farms, like um, almost like a barbell approach where most of our acquisitions are going to be high yields, senior water rights, good climate position. And that's going to be a, a farm we want to own for a long, long time. So we got to do our water diligence, um, make sure that the the quality of the, uh, the property is high. Like we do tissue samples, uh, water samples, all sorts of sort of agronomic look at the, at the farms. And then uh, we look at how is the weather likely to change over the next 20 or 30 years in this area? Um, you know, are we going to uh, get so warm in the winter that the trees don't properly go dormant and then they don't set a good crop? That's something we think about. So um, a lot of it is just doing really good diligence and making sure we're sort of buying, you know, the one or 2% of farms that are kind of highest quality. Generally, that means they're going to have very low cost of production. Um, you know, cause they have high yields and, and inexpensive operating cost, And, um, that's really what, what we're solving for is, uh, that sort of one end of the barbell, very high quality, quality farms. Mm -hmm. We've talked about now a number of times, kind of the, the play here or the playbook or the, the thesis is, is bringing this talent who's this kind of, who's studying at university agronomy and so on and pairing them with kind of their own farms to run. Um, we also just talked about your fancy data tool. <laughs> um, <laughs> what about uh, going back again and trying to kind of intersect this with how searchers think, what about operational efficiencies, um, being more tech forward, you know, out with the fax machine in with Gmail, does any of that stuff play a role here? Uh, just being, you know, yeah operational efficiencies or and or tech forwardness for sure yeah so we um you know i think it all does start with the team so we we have to have a really great team because we're going to give them a lot of authority like we, we want it you know to borrow another concept from another business like we want it to feel like a franchise business where um our asset managers and farm managers are really running their own running their own property and we're just helping them 
Um, so we need really good people that can do that. Uh, we have a kind of a mix of like farm managers that are that like young guy out of college that studied plant sciences and, you know, knows how to do it, but doesn't have the dough. And then also some really experienced farm managers who've been managing for a, a family or a, a larger operation, but were never given kind of the, the full reins uh, to, to run it themselves. So I think we have a mix, but it starts with that very high bar for talent and kind of concentrating great people in one place. When you get that kind of talent, you can do hard things. So um, the average farm manager uh, might not um, you know, want to give self-driving sprayers and tractors a try, but like our guys do. And um, we use all sorts of different ag tech um, for a variety of efficiency reasons. We use uh, Fieldin, which is a tool that uh, tracks our uh, equipment as it moves around to look at like optimal uh, pace as it goes through the orchard. We use uh, aerial imaging to see the, the tree health because it looks at the leaves to see how stressed or not they are. And, and we can spot um, problems in the orchard. If you've got orchards the size of Central Park, you need somebody to sort of look at that holistically and identify areas that are something's going wrong. We use uh, sensors in the soil that look at how hard the roots are pulling to, to uh, get the water they need. And that allows us to really dial in the irrigation. So we're super efficient with water, which is important to us from a value standpoint and a, and a cost standpoint. So we use a lot of technology, but all that's really enabled by our team. And there's no like silver bullet, but it all adds up and makes us more and more efficient. Um, so yeah, the, the way we think about our businesses, you know, we invest a lot in our team that allows us to invest a lot in the farms from a tech sustainability efficiency standpoint. And then, um, that's ultimately going to drive more returns and creates this like virtuous cycle mm -hmm. where, you know, uh, there's sort of mission, um, embedded into the business model. And uh, that's something that's super motivating to me and, and super important, I think, to the overall success of the company. Well, we haven't even talked about mission, which we will, but uh, yeah. before that, tech, back to the tech. So, you know, I, yeah, yeah. I again, as a complete layman here, I, I think of, you know, one of the applications you'll hear of drones, for example, is, is aerial photography yeah. for, for agriculture. And so I just yeah. think, okay, well, this is a best practice that's been adopted by across the agriculture industry. But really, it's probably... It's probably just like you would see in an SMB that yes, it's a best practice, but in reality, these small operations have not are, are have not adopted it, and are indeed years from adopting it, sort of thing. Yep, yep, yeah. And like I think an example would be, you know, most farmers in in our crops use drip irrigation, like micro irrigation. Uh, more and more, that's becoming the norm to be just as efficient as possible. Um, it's more rare to see people use the types of sensors that we use in the field because they're uh, not cheap. It's it's complicated. Uh, you need to be able to you know look at your iPad or your computer in the morning and and dial things in further. And um, you know I think fortunately or unfortunately like that's not that common in the industry. So I think we definitely use more technology than than the average uh, the average farmer. And I think you know there's no silver bullet, like none of it's going to, um, add 50% to the bottom line, but it, it, it all adds up and it makes us more efficient, smarter kind of learning, um, machines. And we're just, you know, getting something out of each at bat at bat. We have each season, 
uh, getting better and better uh, operators. Mm -hmm. And so this hiring great talent being such a key part yeah. of your strategy, do you guys have this like really well-honed aggressive recruiting function? Are you, I mean, are you at the the schools where agronomy, <laughs> the best agronomy schools and, you know, recruiting from within them sort of thing? We have some people straight out of school, but mostly, um, you know, we're hiring from um, other farming companies, other, um, you know, family businesses, uh, kind of the agronomy and like more like plant doctor type of uh, businesses that are out there that give farmers advice. So we hire from different parts of ag. I think we do have a very strong reputation. We treat our people really well. We have a you know very strong culture. And I think um, that's made it easier and easier to recruit good talent over time. Like recruiting now is, is much easier than it was four or five years ago because we've just invested or, or like over invested in, in making this a great place to be kind of a, a, a concentration of really awesome people. Yeah. It's hard to like describe, but you know, I think when I talk to other business owners, like just the, the more you put into the culture, the more you're going to get out of it. And I think, um, we definitely feel the benefits of that. And in an industry where, you know, small businesses can't necessarily do that. Large businesses tend to be more like stale and bureaucratic. Like our, we're very thoughtful about the culture and the value system that we, we operate within. And, and that's just paying big dividends in terms of getting fantastic people. Well, elaborate on that. That's perfect segue to, to the mission. Yeah. What, what is the culture the mission, the values? So our, our North stars leave the world better than we found it, which to us is like the test we, you know, apply to anything we do. So we want our team to be better off than if they worked elsewhere. We want our investors to be better off than if they invested in something else. Uh, we want the farms to be better off than if somebody else owned them. So it's sort of a, a the bar we hold ourselves to. We hope that's going to lead to farms, families in a future we're proud of. So a lot of what we're doing is, you know, hopefully showing the, the ag industry there's a better way to better way to do things sometimes. And, um, you know, the way we try to act is being really candid with each other, uh, putting family first, acting like owners, and then leading by example. So um, we want to be really honest with each other. We want to remember there's bigger things in life than, than work, which is the family first. Um, I think what we're fantastic at is acting like owners. We have this very, like, dynamic uh, team that ultimately, you know, feels more responsibility for the farms than, than if they own, you know, they owned them themselves and all of our team has equity. So they really do own them, but I think people act that way anyway. And then lead by example to us is, you know, certainly doing the right thing, but it's also, um, you know, trying new things that, uh, the average grower might not do. So we have a desalination system on one of our farms where we can take water that couldn't be used. Uh, clean it up uh, so that it's suitable for the trees, and we're basically using, uh, you know, found water that um, really uh, is much more efficient and sustainable. So that we don't know how well that's going to work, but we're definitely going to try it. And then if it works, we're going to do more of it. We're going into a new region, uh, doing organic conversions. These things are not necessarily everyday um, activities, but we're going to take some some calculated risk try new things and, and try to, you know, double down on what's working and not be afraid to, to try new things. Cause that's kind of what the, the industry needs. So mm -hmm. that's how we describe it to our, our team. I think it, it sort of feels like 
uh, we're really serious about what matters. So culture, results, financial, uh, sustainable, otherwise. We're really informal about what doesn't. We don't have a dress code. Uh, we didn't get an office till like a year ago. You know, we were working out of closets and shared spaces and whatnot. Dollar generals. Um, no, yeah, dollar generals. No fancy trucks. Um, you know, we just don't believe in that kind of bullshit. And so we want to be really serious about the things that actually matter and, and like extremely informal uh, about the stuff that doesn't and kind of, uh, you know, keep the sort of bureaucracy out and, and the entrepreneurialism high. You know, it, it, it hearing anything about um, agriculture is going to, is going to, um, invariably kind of make contact with the climate conversation, both in terms of, yeah. both in terms of doing right by the climate, which I think you've kind of already addressed yep. in trying to move or go organic and, and where you can, but also in terms of your own prospects and how climate change may or may not affect uh, the long, especially if you're a long-term play here and you're not, you're not thinking in five-year increments, but in 50-year increments. So I think you've already addressed the former, but if there's more to say about how you guys are doing your best to respect the climate, say more, yeah. but then, but then also address how you think about climate change in terms of, in terms of mitigating risk. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we do a lot on sustainability on the farm. So of course there's the things like organic conversions that are, um, you know, more known to the consumer. If you're in this sort of sustainable ag world, there's things that are a part of organic farming that matter. Um, you know, we're not using pesticides in organic. We're using like pheromone based disruption. So we emit female pheromone that confuses the pests. They don't mate. The pest population is suppressed. We don't have to kill them, but that affects pollinators, for example, because we're not, we're not killing the bad bugs. We're also not accidentally killing the good. Um, we use, uh, compost to deliver the nutrients our trees need and compost uh, uh, generally improves the soil quality the soil health and is capturing carbon so almonds and pistachios generally are carbon negative whereas most types of protein is is pretty carbon intensive like you know uh, beef uh, pigs chicken like all that stuff is is carbon intensive and so we're fortunate that we're carbon negative and then we like really lean into that when we're doing the organic. So there's a lot we do that I think the end consumer doesn't know about today, but I think is caring more about over time and, and new types of certifications around pollinators and regenerative farming that I think will be something we participate in over time. We're probably already doing and we'll just sort of take credit as those markets um, and certifications become more uh, clear and defined. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the way we position ourselves is we, we, you know, back to the original, like North star, we want to leave the world better than we found it. We want to be doing this for a long time. And so, you know, I think we're trying to protect ourselves by buying high quality water rights, areas that really can long-term support these types of crops. Cause there's some areas that, that can't. And, um, you know, that means, good water rights that are going to have uh, water every year. Um, it's uh, climate position, um, meaning it's going to have the right weather now, but the right weather in, in 30 years. And, um, you know, that's challenging to do, but it's something that we think is important given we're trying to build this business for the long haul. Mm -hmm. 
we're, we still got a few more questions here, Jack. I hope you're hope you're up for yeah. it, uh, and some yeah. and some meaty ones too. So okay, so Good. the let's talk about what the business looks like, kind of kind of in terms of ownership and all of this equity that you've taken on. So yeah, um, super basic. Y- you are a business. You are not a fund, right? Yep. Okay. We think about ourselves increasingly as you know a. a investment firm with one portfolio company. So it kind of, I sit in both seats a little bit, but really it's a, it's a business, um, not a, not a fund. Mm-hmm. And, and actually I, <laughs> despite the fact that I'm the one who asked the question, can, can you explain to folks like what the nuance there is between the difference, what the nuance there, yeah. the, the difference between those two kind of so the things are historically here. we had a, you know, a manager entity that oversaw all the different farm entities. We pulled them all into one main business. So now most of the farms are in one partnership. Uh, our company manages that partnership kind of like um, y- you might see in a private equity context where there's uh, you know, TPG and then it's portfolio company. They might have lots of portfolio companies. We have one and we are deeply involved in, in the operation of it. So I think about it more and more like uh, an operating business that um, you know, we have partners that come into the operating business, um, the, the operating business, the, the Goldie Farming LP, they, you know, pays a management fee and a carry for us, uh, overseeing it and, and running the, the business. But ultimately it's one single partnership that, that has, uh, our, our investors in it that owns the farms that, that does the farming and, um, all that. Okay. And as you, so, so you, $350 million in, in assets, is that number set to just grow indefinitely? Is there a ceiling? Or as long as you can find deals, you can keep growing that number? I think our business is going to sometimes grow, sometimes not, you know, uh, depending on where we are in the, the markets that we're in. So, um, you know, this is a particularly attractive uh buy opportunity in, in almonds because price has been low for three and a half years. These crops tend to have cycles where, um, you know, price gets high, all the growers make money, they overplant. Five or six years later, those, those orchards come online and create too much supply. Price falls in a time like this where price is low, nobody's planting. Uh, people are ripping out or abandoning orchards and so supplies falling and demand will keep growing and cause that to boom again as it outstrips supply. So there's going to be moments like today where we want to be acquisitive. And then there's going to be moments where prices are pretty high, valuations are pretty high, and and we're going to be, you know, probably not growing quite as much mm-hmm. in those periods. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you, and you referred to examples earlier where a, a couple of firms who have kind of done this playbook over decades there were two big buying opportunities where they were very acquisitive in their intervening years, just kind of sat on their capital or didn't deploy more capital. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we see that, you know, certainly if you read like, you know, Berkshire Hathaway letters, you're going to read all about that kind of stuff. Like, you know, um, buying in the opportune moments that yeah. only come around once every 10 or 15 years. And then even like in ag, we see that with the, the family farmers we really respect um, built their businesses that way. Like mm-hmm. the one I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but if you had to guess, just to give us a sense of ceiling or potential here, 
what do you think that $350 million number is after this buying window, like after you've gone through this acquisitive period? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I think there's about 1.5 million acres of almonds in California. And, that's, you know, maybe that's $50 billion of, of assets. So it's a big market. Uh, as, as I share, like a lot of that um, is not of the quality that we'd want. And so it's a smaller portion that we'd want to buy. But I do think this is a, a big market with a lot of opportunity. And um, it's something that, you know, we're excited to keep keep building a business around. So I don't know. Um, and it, it's definitely hard to say um, how the growth will play out because we do want to be very flexible and grow when it makes sense, not grow when it doesn't. But I do think it's a big market um, in almonds and pistachios. And then probably, you know, some other crops that over time, uh, you know, would make sense to use a similar model mm. to, to get into as well. Mm -hmm. The um, structure of ownership. So how does, how, like, what does your equity look like to whatever extent you can share and your co-founder yeah. and then, and then, the, and then the, the managers who you kind of really want to see thinking like owners um, over their farms. And, and you said that they probably would anyway, but you've also given them equity to, to juice it further. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we, uh, our investors are limited partners in a limited partnership. So we have a, you know, limited partnership that they, uh, come into, um, that, uh, capital allows us to acquire the farms. And, uh, if we do well and the assets appreciate in cash flow, we earn, uh, 20% of the profits, uh, a carry type of model or promote. And so that's where my equity comes from. We also um, grant 5% of the profits off the farms to our team. So like a private equity firm would have an option pool for its management teams, um, that's the same concept. So we have 5% of, if a farm makes $100, $5 are going to go to the asset manager, the farm manager, some of the farm operators, uh, the accountant who's involved with that farm. And usually I'd say uh, the asset manager and farm manager are going to be some of the bigger investors in their, in their properties via that program and really feel uh, a lot of ownership over how the, how the farm does over time. And what I see is a strong incentive to, um, you know, go the extra mile, uh, make tough decisions on, um, you know, things that are working or not working. Um, a good example I always share is, uh, our big property in Arizona. Um, you know, I go down and visit occasionally. I was driving back to, to Indiana during COVID, uh, where I'm from originally, uh, from California all the way through the night, ended up in Kingman, Arizona at like 6 a.m. on a Saturday, um, pulling the gate, you know, let myself in. Um, but of course, this is a strange car pulling onto the property and I'm been there two minutes and I see a dust cloud coming at me, you know, 50 miles an hour. It's our foreman, Jerry, who for whatever reason was like monitoring the gate at 6am on Saturday. Excuse me, can I help you guys? It's like, Jerry, it's me. So, you know, that stuff, you know, a, a sort of typical employee is not going to do that 6am on Saturday, come check on who's, who's pulling into my op operation. But our team really thinks of it as their farms, not like my farms or our investors farms. Mm -hmm. And I think that mindset is just uh, the whole ball game, really. Hmm. I wonder if they 
feel that way. I mean, you've you've developed a culture to to kind of facilitate, enable them to feel that way. But I yeah. wonder if there's also something in the nature of land, kind of presiding over land, that lends itself yep. to to somebody feeling like they're a guardian, a custodian uh, of of a particular bounded space of you know land. You know what I mean? I think that helps. Yeah, I think that's part of it. But I, I really think like, you know, um, we we happen to be in a business that is very tangible. And I think that right. that helps. But we just have a very special group of people that, you know, whether they had equity or not, would really treat it like it was their own and think about it like it was their own and, you know, do the hard things, negotiate the extra little bit to, to kind of save money and, and uh drive the the maximal performance that that we want and i don't know we're just really lucky i think mm -hmm. so you had said maybe in the future you you look at other crops to do kind of a similar playbook um and and let's again kind of define yeah key elements of this playbook um but 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 actually abstract it out because so basically yeah. um an older uh, an industry that maybe uh, where a lot of the kind of mom and pop uh, it's very fragmented, a lot of mom and pops. They're not necessarily using the best practices or the, the latest technologies. And yet there are there are operators out there who um, could basically run the businesses better, let's let's call it. Uh, but those operators don't have access to capital to go buy their own. So you're in the you're building a business around kind of marrying capital with these um, businesses that can be improved with the operators to run them. You know, so the obvious question is like, you know, I didn't, I don't think I said the word farming in that description once. Could, could this model, I wonder, I'm um, so this is just me, yeah. you know, spitballing. Could this model be applied to a bunch of different in industries? Um, and, and maybe this, this is what private equity does and I just don't realize it, but uh, what, how do you, re how do you react? Well, I certainly think it's the search ecosystem, you know, like I think, um, whether it's formal searches or more informal that I know is a big part of who listens to the, this podcast. Like I, I think that is what the, the search ecosystem is. And, you know, it's sort of taking high talent people and giving them the keys to, to run uh, a business that has good potential. So I, I think, um, you know, we happen to be pretty focused on agriculture and see a lot of opportunity for that mindset in agriculture, but a lot of the companies we look up to, like I mentioned, franchise businesses, if you look at like Chick-fil-A franchisees, they're extremely selective, like how they, you know, hire the right people to go open up a new Chick-fil-A. And it's a bonanza when a new Chick-fil-A <laughs> opens mm -hmm. up and, you know, those are well-run operations. We look at, um, you know, Alpine Investors, a private equity firm that's really done this model of uh, buying smaller businesses, uh, but bringing in high talent people to the senior levels of those businesses and, and really focusing on the people side of, of the, you know, value creation. So I think you're right that it, it definitely applies to lots of different things. We happen to be focused on agriculture and, and I think there is a lot of opportunity in agriculture for this kind of model. But um, yeah, I think you're right. It, it is in search and other other places as well. Well, and I guess I guess I, I often just come at this not from in 
the investor mindset or the private equity yeah. firm fund mindset, but as just the the searcher mindset, the, the person who's going to buy yeah. the business. And many of those, the vast majority, are see themselves as the owner operator of a single business. And yep. yes, they may then acquire more and more and build something larger. But I, I just I wonder if rather than people in the audience thinking about want, buying a single HVAC business, they think about kind of your playbook where they're, they set out to buy 10 HVAC businesses in Virginia and they focus their energy on finding great managers of those businesses instead of themselves being the owner operator of an individual business. And again, as I hear myself talk, I guess, yeah, this is a playbook that, that kind of maybe traditional search investors are effectively doing, although they're doing it across multiple industries and, and maybe other, and maybe private equity, industry focused private equity funds are kind of that, that is the playbook. So, so maybe it's not quite as novel as I think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just definitely have found, um, the, the, the people is the whole, the whole ball game. And when you get the right person in the right seat, uh, which is like, a we use a system called EOS, which I'm sure, sure. a lot of people in this community use, um, that's, you know, from Jim Collins or from EOS, but we, it's so real and you really feel that like click of somebody being like, wow, this is just working. Mm. And so we spend a lot of time on that because we just, we find that it works. I find it to be really motivating. I think our team does too. And, um, yeah, we're just super focused on that because I think it, you know, really matters. People in the audience for searchers in the audience, the idea of buying a single farm. So not doing what Jack and Goldleaf are doing where there's this, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of capital deployed, but buying that that yeah. one pistachio farm um, and improving it and bringing best practices to bear on it. Is that something that you think a searcher should consider or do they need like the level of expertise, the agronomist, you know, your agronomists and so on, people have really been educated in this. Uh, is that really, is that really who should, think about doing this because as you well know yeah. many searchers do buy businesses that are highly technical hvac businesses that stand in that i keep right. using those are very technical businesses and so searchers who have no hvac experience will buy them and make a success right. of them can the same thing be thought of here for like single farm acquisitions i think possibly i mean i think we definitely occasionally see like a younger a younger guy that manages to raise raise capital around you know buying a, a farming operation um, and I think that's, that's awesome. One thing I talk about in one of our letters a year or two ago is this isn't a winner take all business, like in tech where you need to scale it to survive. Like, um, you know, we can sit at our current size and, and do quite well over time if we operate well and, and have the right farms. Um, so I think there is opportunity there. Um, I think we get little bits of advantage over time as we get a little bit bigger, but it's not so substantial that you can't imagine, you know, owning a couple hundred acre farm and, and doing well with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You do need some amount of scale, but, um, you know, it doesn't need to be our size to, to work. Mm -hmm. And, and to be clear though, you would have to part, you a searcher would have to partner with, you'd have to have your manager. I mean, if you ain't doing the what farming. What we see is like somebody that, yeah, that is, looks like one of our farm managers that kind of bootstrapped a, a farming operation over time. Um, that's what we tend to see is, but not necessarily like somebody from HBS or GSB going and going and buying a, buying a farm. Cause it, you know, you, you do need the, uh, farming and agronomy expertise and that's, it takes a long time to learn cause you only get one crop a year. So you only have like one feedback loop per year. So I think that's why the, the industry 
is it's so long duration because you don't get uh, to learn quite as fast as you would maybe in, in other businesses. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that is an interesting challenge of of yeah. agriculture. But but Jack, just yeah. to be clear, why wouldn't why couldn't uh, an entrepreneur buy a business and and have a farm manager that already has a farm manager? Yeah. They hire a farm they, manager, and so they're the you know they're the jack uh, of this of that particular sure. business. I think they could, and I think um, I think it's it's definitely possible. Um, it just takes you know it takes time to get um, basically the. Uh, that relationship going and it's some of the, some of the things of like, why has this space not been institutionalized? Like the overlap of talent and capital and stuff. So I think it's possible. Um, what we've seen more of is a couple cases of like, uh, more of a younger farmer that, that gets into the business themselves, finds the capital to do it. Great. Jack. Well, one last kind of big topic I want to hear more sure. about is just the long-term, like a few elements of being a long-term business. First of all, yeah. um, kind of a technical question: Is there going to be a moment where you return the capital or to to your investors, or what does that look like? How do they think about the return on deploying a quarter billion dollars uh, into something that's indefinite? How, like, just how do they think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, when we were buying these as individual farms, eventually we would sell the farm, you know. And I think uh, now. Pistachio farm lasts for like 50 plus years. Almond farm lasts 25 years. So that could be quite long-term, but that's how we originally thought of it. Now that we have it as one business, we really think of it as um, building the business over time and uh, creating off-ramps for our partners if, if they want that. I think a lot of our partners want the long duration compounding. Some of them want um, you know, a shorter duration than that. And so I think the next phase of the business is really focused on raising to take advantage of the almond cycle where it is uh, coming out of that. And I think there will be opportunities to, you know, recapitalize, uh, let people uh, cash out if they, they so choose. And I just really think about this as like one of my companies at TPG where maybe a different uh, firm, a different owner owned it before we did. They took it through one phase of the business. We were taking it through the next. And um, I do think we're going to be with the business for a long time, but the the partnership group might stay pretty consistent. It might turn over a little bit as we you know, raise money in, um, offer chances for, for liquidity. But um, we're definitely thinking about the business long term. And I think a lot of our investors think that way too, but not, uh, not all are planning to be 25-year hold. Jack, when you were thinking about how you wanted to um, kind of model this as long-term uh, or not, one of the other uh, businesses that you mentioned earlier in this interview, uh, if forgive me if I'm butchering it, but was, I guess it was Branded, what Branded worked on before, where he, he did kind of um, acquire a portfolio of uh, farms for the Canadian fund. Do, do I have that right? Yeah, they uh, planted, um, uh, developed a bunch of orchards and then sold that to a Canadian pension. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And so you must have considered that yourself as, as what you know you would, you Jack would go do. How did you decide to do something that is going to require decades of your life? What did you like about kind of truly long-term 
um, commitment as opposed to uh, something like what Brandon did. Yeah, I think um, there's some like personal aspects of it and then some more like industry aspects of it. Like when we look around our industry at who's been successful, this is just a very long-term industry. So we look at companies like Cargill or Driscoll's that I mentioned, and those businesses were built over many decades, if not centuries. I think Cargill, uh, you know, was founded in the mid 1800s and is, you know, still around today. And, and that's, um, the type of businesses we really look up to and, and really what's worked in agriculture. This is not a, a business where you can sort of buy, turn around and flip like in, in real estate. And so, um, you know, it just doesn't work. And the, the businesses that have been successful, um, in our, our space are, are very long-term oriented. And so, you know, that's something that is sort of just foundational about the the industry we're in. I think I also just admire those businesses a lot. And, uh, you know, I think I personally enjoy building something or the sort of act of building it, like trying to make uh, a great company out of nothing is, is very inspiring to me and something that gives me a lot of energy. So like building our great team, building a great portfolio, learning every year and improving every year. And that stuff doesn't happen overnight. It, it's not like a quick mastery kind of industry where you can just come in, do something and, and have a great result, um, maybe like tech or something. So for us, like I, I think um, it is a long-term compounding type industry. And, and that's um, something I found really motivating and I think matches with my personality and my um, you know, just like what gets me excited about coming to work every day. Yeah. So I think it's the industry, but it's also, also personal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I too, I just think businesses that are century businesses are so cool. It's so neat. And, and so, and you really think about gold leaf in those terms, like you, you, you aren't going to be around in a hundred years, but you, you hope and expect that gold leaf might. I, I hope that's what we're building is like that level of kind of strength and durability is, um, you know, I hope it lasts beyond me and, um, I hope I do this for a long time, but I hope it, it lasts beyond me. And, um, you know, I think we're going to have lots of different things we learn and lots of different iterations of how we, we operate, but I hope that what we're building is, is pretty lasting. And, uh, that's definitely how we, we approach, uh, growing the company and building it. And just again, kind of on working with investors when you're thinking about something so indefinite, you know, permanent equity is a phrase that you hear about a lot, but, but, you know, I've, I've, I've heard some people also be kind of skeptical of it because permanent equity they'll say is, well, that just means, you know, rather than seven years, it means 15 years or rather than seven yeah. years, it means 20 years. So it's, it's a longer time horizon, but it's not really permanent. Uh, or indefinite. Do you have any thoughts about that, that you can educate the audience on how to think about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we don't seek to have like no accountability from our, from our partners and that like they're, they're stuck and, you know, to nothing they can do about it. Like, I think sometimes the, the permanent equity thing is like aspiring to have uh, things that aren't good for the business, you know, hmm. like we no. want what do you mean? the, well, I just mean, um, you know, I think we, 
like that our investors uh, ask questions and get involved and and um, are helpful to us as we as we grow. And I think um, we are hoping to build uh, an investor base that is long term oriented, but still. Um, like us has a high ambition level and high bar for what we're, for what we're building. So I don't know, I think, um, we don't necessarily think of our equity as permanent. Uh, we think of it as, you know, partners that, um, want to be along for the ride, but we have to keep earning their, their trust Mm -hmm. every day and, and demonstrating good performance every day. So that's like a, you know, every day, month, year commitment. And, um, we, we try really hard to do right by them and do a good job for them. Um, even if the, the vehicle is set up to be longer term than that and, and sort of the legal docs are set up to be longer term than that. So okay. I guess that's what I mean. Okay. But, you know, I think like, you know, not to, my, my team's going to laugh at this because I always use like so many Berkshire Hathaway analogies, mm. but <laughs> they talk about their investor base is like carefully crafted over many, many years. And, you know, they were really reluctant to do the B shares that they eventually did. Um, you know, they basically felt they had an awesome group of people that were their partners and they, they didn't want to change that up because they'd spent a long, long time, um, telling them what they were building, getting people who are on board for that. And there is that aspect of, Hey, here's what we're doing. Are you signed up for that? And trying to get that more perfect kind of match between who are your partners and, and what are you trying to build? Is everybody on the same page? So anyway, I think it's a constant uh, work in progress, but it's something that we think about a lot to have the right type of partners for what we're trying to do. Yeah. Well, as you guys grow and become more successful and, and better at what you do and your, your reputation, uh, precedes you, I imagined kind of a flywheel will kick in with respect to your investors the same way it does with your access now to the best farms and your access to the best talent, all that stuff kind of gets easier as your reputation grows, you can, you, you, rather than, you know, you, you can kind of become selective with, with who you hire, what you buy, and then also whose capital you take. So. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Right. Jack, what didn't we talk about that you wanted to, did we miss anything? You know, I don't think so. Um, I think, uh, no, it's been, it's been fun to kind of share the story, talk about the different aspects that are similar and different from, you know, the, the typical, uh, business that's, that's on your program and no, it's been awesome to, to be here. So thanks. You mentioned, uh, well, this is where I'll ask how people should reach out or connect with you, but you did mention an annual letter. Is that something the public can, can get? Yeah, I think we have it on our website. Um, you know, I, I try to put together thoughts on you know, what we learned uh, each year and and share that out with our investors and other people. We're pretty open book. So we have lots of information on our website, which is just goldleaf.ag, G-O-L-D-L-E-A-F.ag. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, whether you're interested in, you know, learning more, coming to, coming to work with us, uh, investing with us, um, all that information is uh, on our website. And um, you know, contact info there, um, to, to reach out. So always love meeting people interested in ag and, and, uh, trying to get more involved in, in food production and sustainable food production. And so if people want to reach you directly is still the best way via the contact form of the website or, or can they hit you up on LinkedIn? Yeah. My emails, yeah. Jack at goldleaf.ag and, uh, you know, our website has a, has a variety of contact, uh, details too, but Great. yeah, feel free to reach out and I'll get you the right person. Great. 
Jack McCarthy, thank you very much, sir. What a fascinating uh, venture you're working here. Yeah. Working on here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.